My name is Melissa. I'm on staff with Chi Alpha. In case that's a shocker. Can you guys believe this is our last message in our Philippians series? I know this little fun-sized letter has just been so full of blessing for me and hopefully for all of us this past month. Um, so let's just go ahead and get those Bible pastors going around, please. If you would like a Bible, just raise your hands. Um, you can feel free to keep it as our gift to you. And you guys can go ahead and flip flippy over our two Philippians. Just, it's the last time we can say that, you know, it's the last message, so I'm just going for it. Hey, I'd encourage you guys, if you haven't done something like, like this before, read the letter, not right now, but sometime, read the letters through, like, multiple times. Um, one time on a mission trip in high school, our youth leaders had us read Philippians every single morning of our mission trip um, for, like, a week and just circle a different theme word every day. So, like, one day it might have been, like, joy, and we would, like, go through and, like, circle all the times we saw joy or serving people or the gospel or something. Um, it's really cool to get a read a, a letter so many times to kind of get the whole picture um, and the smaller parts. Um, figure it out and yeah, you can do that even on your, on your own. Just read it for a few days in a row and circle a different theme word and kind of notice how it connects to other things in the letter. Um, so as we wrap up this letter tonight, I just wanted to review um, some of the themes that I've noticed in this letter, even just reading it again the other day. Um, just to kind of review what we've been, been learning. So some of the themes in the letter are joy, um, suffering, and even hope beyond suffering. A lot of talk about humility. Another theme is kind of like life, death, eternity, just that whole spectrum, I guess. Um, another theme is what we live for. Like, for example, in chapter one, where Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Or in chapter three, um, he says the enemies of the gospel, their God is their stomach. So like, what do we live for? What rules us? Another kind of theme is standing firm or persevering. And the last thing that I notice is kind of like partnership in the gospel or persevering through suffering. And as I was rereading the book in preparation for this, I just noticed in chapter one, sorry, I'm trying to talk so we can get the sounds good. <laughs> um, in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, this passage kind of stood out as a little bit of an encapsulation of, of the whole book to me, where Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, or I only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, that you guys at the church are striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Because guys, this world, both back in the Philippians day and Paul's day, and still now in our day, is full of forces that oppose faith in Jesus, right? Perhaps you've noticed this. Um, whether it's the Roman Empire, Nero, not, you know, the best leader ever, um, or it's like false believers who are trying to trick people away from Jesus's real truth into like some weird offshoot, um, or just the constant gravity of popular culture who's trying to pull us away and be like, hey, you got to follow this to have the good life. This is really what makes life meaningful. Um, all of those different things are trying to compete for, for our attention and for our devotion. And guys, to live for Jesus, we can't just stay in cruise control. We're, we're like little salmon trying to swim up current, like against the current. We're always fighting upstream. Um, and I think that's one reason that for the Philippian believers and for now us today, um, being in community, times like now, it's so refreshing and healing for us because these are like our moments 
um, to rest and get refilled before we go back out and keep living against the world's forces. Also, when I was rereading the, the letter again for preparation for tonight, I noticed this other theme of kind of like abundance um, when I reread the book. Like, all the time, even woven throughout the passages about suffering, there are words like great joy, or Paul's like the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's not like, Jesus is awesome. He's like the surpassing worth. He's like going out of his way to find exuberant type of words, like extra words. He's like, we eagerly await a savior from there. Rejoice in the Lord. Did you guys know that the word joy occurs more than most others in this letter? Like Paul writes joy or rejoice like 16 times in this little three-page-ish letter. It's not just suffering alone or just perseverance alone. Life is that way if we do it without Jesus. But if we do this countercultural life arm in arm with Jesus, our king, the one who pioneered and trailblazed this new way, if we're walking arm in arm with that Jesus, man, there's so much more joy available to us in any moment than we've ever experienced before or that we could ever experience apart from him. And I'm confident that none of us here tonight have reached the max of joy hope, peace, or love that God offers to us by his Holy Spirit. That's not even like hating on us. It's just like there is so much more that we have yet to tap into. I doubt that Paul had even maxed it out, and he says that he learned to be content even when he was starving and had nothing. I'm not personally there yet. Um, that's a big theme of our text tonight as we close out the letter tonight is like this kind of abundance in Jesus, the plenty and, and supply that we have in, in our Lord. So without further ado, let's see how Paul closes out the letter tonight. We're going to start with just the first three verses, Philippians 4, 1 through 3. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, to help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers, whose names are in the book of life. We're going to pause there. I bet you didn't see that coming if you haven't read this book before. <laughs> we get right into Paul calling out two individual women in the church, and we're probably wondering, what is going on there, sir? So what do we see as happening? Evidently, these two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, were in a conflict, and Paul saw this conflict as a big enough deal to name drop them publicly and to publicly plead with them to be of the same mind in the Lord. Huh, haven't we heard that idea of being of the same mind before? That's so fascinating. OMG, yes, we have, detective. Good job. Um, you guys might remember chapter two, those verses I told you in the first week of the quarter that I memorized as a junior higher, middle schooler. Sorry, that's what we say now. Um, and those verses that still get triggered in the best way every time I hear something related. Um, so we're going to go back and reread those verses, chapter two, one through 11, at this juncture. Paul says, therefore, if you guys have any encouragement from being, being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if you have any, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. That's where it is, by the way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. 
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue can acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Guys, for Paul, everything in this letter to the Philippians is connected to this passage. This passage is like this poem about Jesus. It's like the axle that everything else rests on and is tied to and whatever else axles do, not a mechanic, shocker. Um, but this poem, it describes Jesus' way of thinking and, and choosing and, and acting. It talks about how Jesus thought about himself and others and how Jesus thought about his own rights and, and others. And he, it talks about Jesus' choices, how far he's going to go to serve other people like us. Did you guys catch that? Jesus' thoughts determined his choices, which determined his actions. Our thoughts determine our choices, which determine our actions. I am going to show you guys the first meme that I have ever made, and very likely the last, depending on how this very moment goes. But when I was reading Philippians 4, 2 through 3, about the two ladies fighting, this is what popped into my poor little brain. Please pray for me. But like, Brayden, why are you filming this moment? Oh my gosh. I'm going to blush. I'm blushing. Here we go. Okay. Nancy approved it, so whatever that means. I know it passed a good, a good filter. But seriously, Paul is reminding the ladies like, about this poem, about Jesus. So let's break down the Jesus poem. So for Jesus, in reality, like literally in reality, he was and is God. Like, existing forever in incomparable glory. That's, that's just true about Jesus' base existence and reality at the start of this poem, right? But, those Bible butts, you got to watch those Bible butts. But he decided not to think of his equality with God as something to just use to his own advantage, to just chill or just stay in. But he chose to scandalously humble himself for us. We, us little goofs who did not at all deserve it, we are not even on the same level or playing field as Jesus. He just loved us, and he chose to do it. He downsized his divinity into a human body. He took on our honestly kind of lame flesh situation. It's not it's my fave sometimes. Watch out when you turn 30. Moving on. Jesus became God in a bod because he loved us, and he wanted to serve us. And guys, how far did he go to serve us? Well, first, he went that far, trading his incredible glory for a human body forever. Then he came to be born as a human baby, growing up in our sin-soaked world, showing us the way of God's kingdom, ministering to thousands, and then dying a gruesome death that was more excruciating than anybody has ever faced before or after or since. All for us. So what is God's love like? It's, it's like that. It's like what Jesus did that we see encapsulated in this poem. Therefore, Paul's saying we don't think of ourselves as higher than others. We don't nurture grudges. We don't think in terms of fairness even as much as our world like, is obsessed with that, you know? We think of ourselves differently like Jesus thought of himself differently. We don't decide to serve others or to serve ourselves and starve others. We choose to die to our own selves to serve other people. How far does God's love go to serve others? Like Jesus showed us, God's love, it doesn't just go to like the minimum, like Oh, I'll do like 1% of an inconvenience and call it good. Check my box. He doesn't just minorly convenience himself. God's love goes to the furthest possible maximum to pour ourselves out, to serve another person as much as possible, to die so that another person could live. 
that's what Paul sees in Jesus, and that's what Paul's remodeled his entire life around. And that's the way that it is for all of us who love Jesus. So this poem is, this, is like the central thing in this, in this whole letter, because Paul's like, Jesus' way of thinking and prioritizing and living and dying says everything about how we are now to live. Because guys, the way of our king and his kingdom have become our DNA as we became new creations in Christ. The way of Jesus is, is our DNA now if we're born again in Jesus. The life and heartbeat of our king in this text, like the Philippians 2, 1 through 11, that's like our DNA now. And if we're following Jesus, this way of thinking and choosing and living, it should be becoming more natural every single day. Because the same spirit that filled Jesus and empowered his ministry, it also fills and empowers us and molds us to live and love like Jesus every single day. And that impacts every single aspect of our lives, all that we do in public and private, how we think of time and talents and resources and relationships. Oh my goodness, it is so important to live like Jesus in our relationships with, with each other. And just as an aside about that, how we live in relationships is so important. We're actually going to spend the whole rest of this quarter teaching about how these principles from Philippians apply to different kinds of relationships in our lives. Yes, our staff, even though we've graduated, we are actually aware there's still several weeks left in this quarter. Um, and we chose to spend those because Paul talks about relationships so radically in this letter. We're going to apply those practically to like friendships, parents, family relationships, romantic relationships, um, all different kinds of ones. So buckle up or whatever you want to do about that. Just show up again next week. Um, okay, so back to Yodi and Sintiki. I have not forgotten about them. Do not worry. Paul is calling them to each personally choose humility, the way of Jesus, and to remember his example in this chapter two poem, and then together to restore their unity as sisters in Christ. This is the way of Jesus. So I read this, this text in chapter two is like an awkward, at least for me it was awkward. I don't know if it was awkward for the Philippians or for the two ladies. I guess I will ask in heaven. But uh, I read it as an awkward but a mission critical call out. So if you guys were here week one and you have any memory of me talking words about Philippians, you might remember I had us do this thing of Im Im like imagining we were a church and Paul, I mean we are, but like, and Paul, like we were getting a letter from a missionary who had started this church and they were like sharing encouraging words back to us. We were like, OMG, you love us. Um, I don't actually say that, but anyways. So we're gonna do that again tonight. Like let's imagine again that we are a church of believers in Philippi and a letter comes in hot from Papa Paul and we're listening along and right here, it's like, all right, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my dear friends. Yes, love that. Now, Melissa and Meredith, it would be really great if you two could get your stuff figured out because your fighting is really hindering the mission. It's the elephant in the room in Chi Alpha in facilitator meetings and staff meeting. Honestly, come on, homies, you're my coworkers. It's time to talk things out and make things right. That would just be swell. For the record, Meredith and I are not fighting. But if, I know, this is not the way that we resolve conflict as believers, <laughs> FYI. But if Meredith and I had some fat, ugly conflict that we were not resolving, don't you think you guys would be able to tell? Don't you think that it would just, the tension would emanate and cause cracks in the fellow, in like the, the unity of this family? Really think about it. Or if, if Brandon and Taylor were mad at each other. Or Taylor and Tim on worship team are being all passive-aggressive in whatever music-y ways music people do. I don't know. <laughs> don't you think you guys could tell? Obviously not me. It'd have to be really awkward and really obvious for me to notice anything musical going wrong. But 
Did you guys know that even for missionaries today all around the world, one of the biggest reasons that people quit being missionaries and they come off the field, if not the number one reason, is that they can't resolve conflict with people on their team. It's not money, it's not culture shock, it's not spiritual warfare, it's just all the intenseness of being millions of miles, I mean, thousands of miles away. Um, it's, it's they can't resolve conflict with people on their team and then they just, they just give up. This is not like a small issue. This is a make or break issue for God's kingdom because it not only hinders our work, but it compromises our witness to the world. Um, and as a counter to the fake Meredith scenario, I just wanna say as like a, an actual aside, one of my favorite things about our staff team here is that we take our relationships really seriously and we pray every single week for love, unity, and excellence of communication um, with our staff and with our facilitator team and with all of Chi Alpha. And I remember one time last year in a staff meeting that I wasn't thinking, possibly didn't have enough coffee, it doesn't matter, I made a not very thinking joke that was a little passive aggressive and whoops, and, and Brandon paused us very kindly, very perfect. He paused us and was like, hey, that comment was interesting and I would like to know more about what you really think. Like he paused the, the agenda and the, the talk we were having to, to mention that before it became something really big. And we had an unexpected but super needed and healing talk together that unified us so tightly and like, I love being on a team that takes unity so seriously and takes conflict and like communication so seriously that we fix tiny things before they become big and awkward. Um, and I just appreciate that about Meredith and Brandon, just shout out to you, as your leadership. And I can see how it impacts a family, a community when we, when we handle conflict in that kingdom way. So guys, Paul knows these women value the cause of the gospel enough to believe they're gonna do the right thing and figure things out. Um, he refers to them as his coworkers, his equals. They're like his esteemed SBO buddies or his teammates. He's like, I think you're gonna do the hard work of resolving your conflict because there's actually a lot at stake when believers fight. We, like logically, we can't shine like stars against a dark night sky if we are looking just like the dark night sky. That's just a dark night sky. No stars, very sad. Um, we can't look different than the world if we're relating to people just like the world does. So reflection question for this point, which is again, just the first two verses of our text, is um, is there anybody that you need to make things right with? I'm not saying everybody will have something like that. I'm not saying overthink every little weird text de detail or make a mountain out of a molehill. I'm just saying, as I'm talking about these two ladies and Paul calling them out and calling all, all of us to personal humility and unity together, are there any broken relationships or ways of relating that you might need to make right? So if so, just talk to Jesus tonight about what you should do. We're gonna move on to the next uh, section of our, the end of our book of Philippians. So we're gonna read verses, chapter four, verses four through nine now. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This is such a great um, section of verses and I love how Paul calls the believers not to, to a little bit, not to like a daily dose of happiness, but to an abundant joy in the Lord to let the Holy Spirit fill them up with joy, not because their circumstances are easy and fun, we know they're going through an intense time there in Philippi, 
but because joy is a part of God's nature and he imparts it to us by his Holy Spirit. Did you know that you can be filled up with joy no matter what your life looks like right now? Not because your circumstances work themselves out, but because joy is a part of God's nature and he, he gives it to us, he shares it to us by his Holy Spirit. There are a lot of verses in the Bible that speak to this, um, and I encourage you like, to look some up in your God time or in, in core or something, but I just want to share one that has come to my mind a lot this past year is Roman fif- Romans 15, 13, which says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love that verse again, the abundant sort of language, like, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. It's, God is not so stingy and like, rationing things to us. He is so overflowing and abundant in his nature, and he wants us to experience more and more of his life. Um, In verse 5, Paul speaks again to the way we approach others, our posture of hearts of gentleness. And again, I'm thinking that if Philippians 2, 1 through 11, if that's our DNA, if the self-giving heart of Jesus is beating within us, we're going to be filled with love and compassion for other people that comes out in like warm, kind, gentle heart to them, not in like coldness or impatience or pride, right? And then in verse six, Paul talks about two opposing choices, this um, reality of anxiety or connecting to God through prayer. Now to get the elephant in the room out of the way, I know many of us here have experienced or do experience like clinical anxiety, and I'm not sure that that's exactly what Paul is talking about when he says all of this stuff. So if that's something that you've wrestled with, you can just ask Jesus if or how this applies to you. But when I say anxiety, I'm not talking about that type of anxiety, like disorders um, in that clinical way. Um, but what the study, but why study Bible notes say, when they say, do not be anxious, it's referring to a self-centered, counterproductive worry. A self-centered, counterproductive worry it, that's different from like legitimate cares or concerns for the spread of the gospel. And the study Bible referenced some related verses. Um, I put a, the references on the screen. Philippians 2.28, where Paul says that he wants to send Epaphroditus back to to Philippi so that he'll have less anxiety. He's, like, deeply concerned for Epaphroditus almost dying and the Philippians being like, yo, where's our boy? And he's like, yeah, he's trying to not die. Um, And he wants to, like, send him back so that he'll have less anxiety in that situation and less care for Epaphroditus' situation. Um, 2 Corinthians 11.28, Paul says that he faces every day the daily pressure of all the churches he started. I feel like he has this heart of a parent. He's like Papa Paul, and he, like, has these little, like, baby churches everywhere, and, like, when they're suffering, he feels it himself. When they're struggling, when they're sinning, he feels it personally. So that sort of anxiety that he's describing is, like, a pressure for the sake of the gospel and for all of their well-being. And I would imagine that that, that kind of prompts Paul to pray a lot more. Um, and then the last one, Matthew 6, 25 through 31, is the classic Jesus talking the Sermon on the Mount about do not worry about what you'll eat or drink or your life or what you're going to wear, that sort of passage, which is really good. So the study Bible, it goes on to say that anxiety and prayer are often presented as two great opposing forces in the Christian experience. And so it seems like there's a way of anxiously worrying about small, self-focused things that can hinder our ability to pray or connect with God. And that's different than, like, deeply caring about others and churches and the spread of the gospel that probably makes Paul pray even more. And that first one, that self-centered worry about smaller things, seems to be what Paul is talking about. And Paul's recommendation is, if you're in that situation, hey, don't spiral, don't overthink, don't like dwell on small details about your body or your life or these like sort of minor things, um, but actually 
go to God, pray to God, abide with him about those things, connect with Jesus. Um, so at this moment, I just wanted to ask us to reflect on, are there any parts in your life that you tend to unhelpfully worry about? And if there is, how could you learn to turn more to prayer in those? And again, a key takeaway I see in this passage is there's just so much more richness and help available when we allow Jesus to invade our minds. As we learn to let him in, as we learn to think with Jesus, to ask the Holy Spirit to be our supplier of peace through regular prayer and abiding, um, there's just so much more richness available in that reality. Because I bet all of us have experienced some amount of letting our brains run or dwelling on the negative or thinking about worst-case scenarios or overthinking, at least many girls that I've talked to, we understand that sort of thing. Maybe guys too, I don't know. Um, but that sort of dwelling and spiraling isn't usually helpful for us, right? And it's probably harmful to us in some ways. So Paul's saying here, if, if we're wrestling with that sort of a thing, the peace of God will be with you. He describes it as like an opposite reality of anxiety. It's like this inner tranquility based on having peace with God. Like knowing that your sins are forgiven, knowing that you're loved by your creator, knowing that your eternity is secure, like these big ticket things that could keep you up at night, like those things are good, it is finished. That can help us have a sense of rest. Um, and Paul says it can even guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That word is like a military concept um, depicting a sentry who's standing guard. I just picture that in your brain, like a little guard over the gate saying, halt, who goes there? Clearly I have never seen a guard. But um, personally in my brain, um, I feel like it's more like Thoughts get in wherever the heck they get in, and the guard's more like playing whack-a-mole um, with all these rando thoughts rather than guarding one entry point. If there is one, I don't know where it is. But um, I love this concept, you guys, and I'm learning to submit my brain to it. Like, Jesus, could you be a referee in my brain? Could you be, like, helping me take thoughts captive and noticing which ones are just not really helpful and not really true? Um, yeah, helping him just round up unhelpful thoughts or spiraling thoughts and being like, yo, is that true? Is that good? Like Paul says, learn to watch yourself think and replace unhelpful thoughts with what actually is right, what actually is helpful and excellent and praiseworthy. So rather than dwelling or spiraling, Paul says, run to Jesus with what you're thinking and learn to think with him. So if I think about myself, you know, like normally, like spiraling down, um, I picture in this sense the Holy Spirit like lowering a ladder of infrastructure. He's like, here's a ladder of truth. If you want to stop the spiral, you can grab on. And, like, climb out quickly when I'm like, oh, yeah, Jesus, am, is this true? Or am I making something up? Did that person actually say this? Or am I just being a goof? Like, and then I can climb out before I spiral really far. Does that make sense? Um, again, the wrong way to boil down what Paul's saying is, you're struggling with anxiety. Just think positive thoughts. Boom, problem solved. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul's pointing us to this indescribable peace that supernaturally comes through the Holy Spirit and he's saying that peace can guard your heart and your mind more and more and more as you learn to let it. And it can be like a referee calling the shots in your mind. We can learn to change the way we think, like Meredith said in her message a couple weeks ago. So much help is available in Jesus. We have so much more to discover than we have experienced yet. So what is God speaking to you right now about some way he might want to work in your minds? How could you learn to think differently? And we're going to read the last section of our letter tonight, um, now verses 10 through 23. It's kind of like Paul's closing thanks. Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned in the past, but you had no, no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, I haven't said that word in a minute. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in my early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Paul's saying like, yo, you guys are the OG Kickstarters in my ministry. Let's go. Paul says, I have received full payments, and I, am, I have more than enough. I'm amply supplied. Now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send their greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Old name drop there. Um, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So as we wrap this up, this, this section, obviously Paul's saying a big thanks to them, but it's kind of a funny thanks. In a way, if you look at it, he's like, thank you guys so much. TBH, I didn't totally need your gift in some ways, but your gift is still so valuable. So what is Paul saying here? Let's break it down. Paul's thanking them for the money that they sent to him when he was in prison, right? He, he, like they sent him a gift of money to help him out. But even more than thanking them for that gift, he's thanking them for their love and their hearts that are just brimming with, uh, with generosity and partnership. Their hearts are overflowing with love and partnership that compels them to be generous. And that is beautiful and powerful. And as for the specific financial gift they sent, he's saying he doesn't actually depend on their generosity as much as they need to be generous. So why is that? Well, Paul has told us multiple times that he's learned to be content no matter his circumstances. Because like he told us in chapter one, for him to live is just Jesus and to die is gain. His life is all about King Jesus and serving others. He has somehow surpassed caring how his physical needs are doing because he's discovered the abundance that is his through being united with Christ. He's discovered the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. Like in chapter three. Paul says he's so glad to see their generosity keep playing out, not totally because he needs it, but because of what it shows in them. And this reminds me when Jesus talked about financial generosity in Matthew 6, 19 through 24, um, a, por- a portion of it's on the slide behind me, where Jesus says, guys, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store, store your treasures up in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Because wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And that last part about where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I used to think that was just a passive thing, like a little litmus test of my holiness or something. Like, okay, wherever my money is going and my budget, that's like the things I care about. And I think that that is true in a lot of ways. But I remember one time in college, I learned you can flip it around. It's actually a very active thing. Like, I can lead my heart to care about the right things by investing money into those. It's not just like a check on how I'm doing, whoops. It's like I can actively disciple my heart to be more like God's by putting money where I want my heart to be. Does that make sense? And for me in college, one example was that's, that's why I started supporting missionaries as a college student. It wasn't so much because my heart was like heard some awesome presentation and I was this big tidal wave of, of like passion for the cause just happened to me. Because if we wait for that to happen to us, we're rarely ever going to use money in the way God asks us to. Um, 
Rather, I simply decided based on facts, like, fact, God's heart is for people of all nations, and there are some parts of the world that, that my heart does not have a lot of care going on for at this moment. Not like I hate them, but just I, I don't pray about them or, or have, like, a lot of desire. Like, I need to tend that. If my heart's like a garden, which I do not garden, so don't think of my house, but if my heart's like a garden, some parts are, like, growing up really well, and they're doing great and doing gardeny things. Probably should pick a different analogy. Um, but some parts are just, like, maybe there's a seed there, but nothing's been happening to it. It's just kind of chilling, um, very minimal. And so I knew if I want my heart to be caring about people groups that God cares about a ton, I got to put my treasure there. And so I started sponsoring kids and, and supporting missionaries in those places, which led me to pray because I was thinking of them. Um, and, and my heart just followed and, and like grew love for those places. Choosing to invest has been the pipeline for filling my heart with God's love for those people in ways that my own brain just can't do. So who is ultimately blessed when we financially invest to help others? Paul seems to be saying that, one, the people that we give to are blessed, like they receive the gift, that is a blessing. But Paul says even more than the recipients, the givers are even more blessed by having our hearts become more like God's in the process. And I think Paul's also saying that maybe the most blessed is God. He's the recipient of those gifts ultimately and of our hearts of generosity. And Paul says that those gifts are like a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice that's pleasing to God. That's wild. And it's so cool because God is ultimately the supplier of Paul's needs and of our needs, right? Um, giving financially as Christians is such a cool and weird and beautiful thing. I, I don't know if this is legit, but this is how I think of it. I think of it like God like owns everything. I mean, that's biblical, Psalm 24, I think. Like, God owns everything, and so if he's prompting me to give to somebody else, and he's prompting other people to give to me, it's kind of like he's just doing internal transfers in his own, like, banking account, right? He's just, like, triggering all these little transfers, but it's so cool because we have to have faith. If I give to somebody an uncomfortable amount for my budget, like at that moment, I have to have faith that God's going to help me buy groceries in the month, right? And then God meets that prayer and that need, and, and my faith grows, and it's, like, it's so much cooler like the, this incredible economy that God invites us into of trust and generosity and, and just letting God lead us like countercultural people. So when, when we freely give as God prompts us to and to see what God does through those gifts, it's just so awesome. And Paul's telling the Philippians those gifts are like credited to their account of how they invested for Jesus during their lifetimes. These generous sacrificial investments, they pay spiritual dividends and they have some eternal value. And guys, it seems upside down from what we'd expect as just cool Americans, right? But aren't most things upside down in God's kingdom? Like we die so that we can actually live. We receive by giving away. We humble ourselves to be exalted. It's just God's way versus the world's way. Because um, we might expect that Paul would have been the most blessed by the Philippians' financial gift. But he's actually saying it's you guys are even more blessed and maybe even more so God himself. We're so blessed when we give, even more so when we receive. But when God's the one directing our giving and providing what we need, it's just this beautiful economy that we get invited to live in. So the reflection question for this part is, how could you use and invest finances God's way? As we wrap up now, the worship team can come on up. Um, and as Paul's closing out this section, I just see him reminding us of a few things. Tim, when you come, can you grab Kennedy's chair that I stole? Thanks, homie. Paul's reminding us of a few things. One, there's so much more that Jesus provides to us than we're currently accessing. 
So don't even think about giving up. Don't even think about letting your foot off the gas. Keep pressing in. Keep pursuing Jesus. Keep abiding with the one whose worth surpasses anything and everything else in this world. Keep tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Paul's also reminding them, keep persevering. Keep pressing on in this good, good life with Jesus. And the last thing that he's saying to Philippians and to us is, thank you for being partners in the gospel, for suffering and giving with great joy. So as we move into a time of responding to God, there are a couple things I'd like us to do. Um, the first one is to pick maybe one reflection question to just kind of think about and journal with God about. Um, and you can just join in and sing with God whenever you're ready. And the second one is in a couple slash few slash whenever Tim tells us songs, we're going to have a chance to have several of us, plural, many, I don't know, math, like a lot of people of us come up and share something on the mic that God has spoken to us through these Philippians messages this last five weeks. Something that you've learned, something that God's been teaching you. Um, Tim will prompt us when it's time or Kennedy, but in the meantime, as you're journaling, as you're singing, you can also just be thinking about like, is there something that I could share, Lord, that you've taught me through these messages or through the book of Philippians this quarter? So here's a reflection question. Just go ahead and just begin thinking as the worship team plays and join in the singing whenever you are ready. Oh, I'll read them for the podcast, sorry. Um, the first one is, how is Jesus' model and way of love in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, transforming how you relate with others? And the last question is, how could you invite God to transform your mind? How could you learn to think differently? Maybe about worries or finances or relationships. How is God prompting you to think differently with his help?